0: It's a long way to Tipperary, it's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary, to the sweetest girl I know. Goodbye, Piccadilly. Welcome to Barrage, the podcast from the Antrim and Down branch of the Western Front Association. I'm Tom Thorpe, co-chair of the branch. The Western Front Association is the UK's largest Great War History Society and is dedicated to furthering knowledge on all aspects of the Great War. The Antrim and Down branch is one of 60 WFA branches worldwide. We hold regular meetings in Belfast and welcome all people. Further information can be found at our website, WFA.org. In this podcast, John Lee talks on the Yanks Are Coming, the American Expeditionary Force during the First World War. This was a recent talk given at the branch's August 2016 meeting.
1: Okay, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much uh, for the invitation. As, as Ian says, I, um, Celia and I, Celia is from County Down, and we do have a house down just outside Portaferry, so we would come over here a lot. Uh, and, and I just slotted this uh, meeting in during one of our visits. This uh, this interest of, of mine in the Americans on, on the Western Front began because uh, I'm a A a battlefield tour guide, and every May I take the 8th grade of the American school in London to Normandy. Okay, now, uh, we go for five days. I spend five days explaining that the British and the Canadians were there as well, because these kids, you know, have no idea. (laughs) But uh, we were sitting in one evening at at dinner, and one of the teachers said, I've been to Normandy so many times, John, I'm getting really fed up. And I said to him, well, I'll tell you what, one year I'll take you to the American battlefield to the First World War. And he leaned across and took me by the arm and said, oh no, John, America wasn't in the First World War. Uh, No, no, he said, our President Wilson put a stop to all that with his 14 points. And I looked at him and said, okay. So 115,000 deaths, 200,000 wounded in 1918 came from, like, where? (laughs) And uh, he he was astonished, you know, he had no idea. Now, to be fair, he was a... a science teacher and not a history teacher, but, you know, I still would have thought that an American teacher might have known that America was actually in the First World War. Now, the uh, next occasion was when I uh, took a tour over to do the American Revolutionary War in the South, and we called at Charleston and visited the great aircraft carrier, the Yorktown, which has the uh, official museum of the Congressional Medal of Honour very interesting you know so obviously i headed to the first world war bit and i uh, was reading the timeline and it said uh 6th of april 1916 america declares war on germany mm-hmm. and i thought you know i wish <laughs> if, it, if it had been 1916 that would have been good so i went up to the guy on the at the desk there and said i hope you don't mind me pointing this out but of course you're a year out uh, america joined the war in 1917 and he looked at me and said son Nobody here actually knows or cares when America joined World War I. (laughs) And that was a a museum of the Congressional Medal of Honor. So that is America and the First World War. So as you say, next year I hope America will uh, acknowledge the fact that it joined the First World War. And I hope in 1918 it will acknowledge the fact that it did a lot of very important fighting. But um, I won't hold my breath. So when America declared war on Germany on the 6th of April 1917, as I just said, uh, its army numbered exactly 135,000 men, even much, much smaller than the British army was in 1914. If I tell you that its artillery numbered exactly 8,600 men, and on that date, the Royal Field Artillery, Horse Artillery and Garrison Artillery numbered over half a million men, okay? So that's the scale we're talking about. They had about 120,000 men in their National Guard, what we call the Territorial Force. And the American politicians had very little idea of actually sending large armies to Europe. They, uh, they thought the war would be more of a support role, a you know, naval role and supply and this sort of thing. But of course the Entente powers and their very ambitious military uh, were soon disabused the Americans of that idea uh, and started demanding uh, as many men as America could possibly send. And then they had all the problems that we had in 1914 of turning a tiny professional army into a huge um, citizen army. And they had to do it in a very short space of time. Now, if I, just to give an idea, the, the officer corps in 1917 was 5,800 men and it swelled in the space of a year to 200,000 men. Now, 48% of those came from their university officer training corps. Uh, 13% of them were commissioned directly from civilian life experts in transport and that sort of thing Uh, 8% of them came from the ranks of the US Army now the British Army in 1918 over a third of its officers were men promoted up from the ranks so it just again shows you a different scale of things Uh, 6% of the officers came from the National Guard only 3% of American officers in 1918 were regular army officers now they're famously led by a chap called John Pershing um very quickly named Commander-in-Chief of the American Army. He was uh, known in the Army as Black Jack, and I, I thought that had to do with his fairly dark, sort of good looks. But I'm very sorry to tell you that uh, he had commanded the um, all-Negro 10th US Cavalry, and Black Jack was a racial pejorative of the worst. What I thought was a, a complimentary uh, nickname was quite the opposite. Now, he goes over to France very early with very, very clear ideas in his own head um, about how this war should be fought. His active service had been in the Spanish-American War of 1898-99, uh, and, and he chased sort of Pancho Villa and his Mexican bandits up and down the border for a, a year or so. But he was the only serving American officer who'd actually commanded anything as big as a brigade uh, as I said, of those 5,800 regular officers, only 3,800 had been in the army for more than a year. When the American army talks about an old-timer, he means somebody who's been in the army for more than a year. <laughs> okay? So that would come as quite a shock to almost any other army in the world, I would have thought. And Pershing totally believed in a, in a unique American style of warfare, of open warfare. And he was uh, a sponsor of an article that appeared in 1914 in the American Infantry Journal. And I'll just read you what the American Army was saying about battle in 1914. Infantry under fire would leap up, come together and form a long line which is lit up with fire from end to end. A last volley from the troops, a last rush pell-mell of the men in a crowd, a rapid making ready of the bayonet for its thrusts, a simultaneous roar from the artillery, a dash of the cavalry from cover emitting the wild yell of victory, and the assault is delivered. The brave men spared by the shot and shell will plant their tattered flag on the ground covered with the corpses of the defeated enemy. Such is the part played by infantry on the field of battle today. Okay, that was written in October 1914, (laughs) you know, when when we'd had all that fighting on the Western Front we're just going into the First Battle of Ypres. This is the article went on. In real war, infantry is supreme. It is the infantry which conquers the field, which conducts the battle and in the end decides its destinies. So... um, they are absolutely insistent that it's a firepower and mobility of riflemen that win win battles. Um, they literally call support weapons newfangled and adjuncts to the rifle. Um, firepower is an aid, but only an aid. If firepower intensifies, then so much greater will be the demand on the infantry for its utmost effort for the supreme sacrifice without which victory cannot be won. They're saying it is the individual skill of the marksman and the master of the cold steel who will dominate the meeting engagement that constitutes modern warfare. Boy, these boys are going to get a rude awakening. Um, to reinforce this message, it was specifically stated that artillery has, in general, no independent role on the battlefield. Its sole subject is to assist the other two arms, the infantry and the cavalry, uh, to secure decisive results. Troops advance, occupy the hostile position, and by vigorous pursuit, destroy and throw into confusion the hostile forces. The isolated and independent action of artillery leads to no decisive results. And indeed the American uh, manual on artillery uh, of this document, uh, something like 55% of it is on horse mastership and only 45% is actually on ballistics and and the the, the conducting of uh, fire control and that sort of thing. So this is the old debate, and we had it in in Britain and France before the First World War. It was engendered by the Russo-Japanese War of the offensive à Lutrance. Um, Pershing had been an observer in Manchuria in 1904, 1905, and he'd come away with a great admiration for the elan, the zeal and the courage of the Japanese infantry. And the problem is that uh, the leadership of the American army now carries all these ideas with them to France in the teeth of all the experience of the fighting on the Western Front. Everything right through from 1914 to 1917 is completely set aside by these uh, guys and, th- and they go to France with ideas born in the Russo-Japanese War. Uh, So when Pershing called for American divisions to be massive, and remember they are twice the size of a British or a French division, American divisions are enormous, um, what he's really calling for is a huge numbers of riflemen to be available to soak up really high casualties and keep the battle going uh, to try and restore what he calls open warfare. Uh, To be fair to him, he did allow for a very formidable order of battle within each division. Uh, They had a very powerful artillery brigade, each division had 5,000 gunners, remember the entire American artillery was only 8,600 a few months before. So. They, they have uh, 48 75mm guns, 24 really big 155mm howitzers, 12 6-inch mortars. Each of the four infantry regiments has 192 uh, light machine guns. They were those awful French Chauchat guns, but uh, at least there are a lot of them. Um, eight, 16 medium machine guns, 6 Stokes mortars, and they also had carried these uh, 37mm guns that the French infantry had. They, uh, they, so They had three of those as well. And on top of that, each of the two brigades in the division had an extra machine gun battalion, 64 guns, and then there was a third machine gun battalion attached to the division headquarters. So these American divisions do go in with massive firepower, uh, but uh, it's, it's the way they use them which is really uh, rather strange. Pershing quickly calls for an army of a million men, uh, and uh, he, he very quickly doubles that number uh, almost, as, almost from day one. By May 1918, there were 667,000 American troops in France. There were one and a half million by August 1918. Uh, by November, there were two million men in France and another million on their way. You know, so they really did mobilise very quickly in enormous numbers. In a way, the numbers of men are immaterial. Uh, their, their big problem is the complete dearth of officers and NCOs to organise these men. Um, and Pershing, to be, again, to be fair to him, said he didn't really think the American army would get into action until sometime in 1919. Now, as uh, as Pershing came over with all his staff, the Secretary of State for War in America, a chap called Baker, sent over a fact-finding mission. And this included some very intelligent people, one in particular called Charles Summerall, an artillery officer, who I I will talk about quite a lot as we go along here. He promptly asked for the number of guns in the division to be doubled. He just just looked at the Western Front and said, right, we, we need twice as many guns as we think we need. That was refused, of course. A machine gun expert called John Parker warned of the disaster awaiting the United States infantry if it went to France with Pershing's ideas of open warfare. And somebody in the Department of Defense in Washington wrote against this report, speak for yourself, John, You know, it's more or less just dismissing this guy's experience uh, um, and just setting it aside completely. So all these Ameri- Americans were sending over observers to Europe, working on both sides, because as a neutral country, they could send observers to the German army as well as the Allied armies. Um, and uh, th- these uh, young officers, they're fairly junior officers, they're struggling to cope with some very contradictory evidence. Um, and of course, they have, n- they have no impact on official American doctrine whatsoever. So Pershing arrives in France, half expecting the War Department to supply him with uh, an updated doctrine, while the War Department in Washington is waiting for John Pershing to tell them <laughs> uh, what the what the new style of fighting should be. Pershing openly despises current British and French styles of warfare. Uh, the importance of well trained infantry as the prime essential to military success can hardly be overestimated. He says, he's already de- de- he derides. Allied attacks that are based on the cautious advance of infantry with prescribed objectives where obstacles have been destroyed and resistance largely broken down by artillery. He thinks that's completely the wrong way to go about these things. Um, He left orders for the training of US troops in 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 America to concentrate on open warfare. They need an aggressive offensive based on self-reliant infantry where each man was a bayonet fighter invincible in battle. I'll sort of pause there, you can almost hear the German machine gunners laughing when they, when, they, when they saw that was what was going to face them on the Western Front quite soon. So Pershing actually said, it. this is in August of 1918, okay, he said, I consider some of the instructions we have received from the British to be a positive detriment. And he thought the same of the French. His argument was twofold. The British and the French haven't done so well so far that they think they can uh, teach us very much. Okay, uh, And then he said an American army trained to a completely different doctrine would be easier to keep out of the, uh, be, uh, being absorbed into Allied formations. And that's probably one of his high motivations, of course, to keep the American army completely separate and independent of the Allied armies. Now the fact is that the first two American divisions to deploy on the Western Front, which is the first and 26 divisions, got no training at all in America. They just went straight out to France uh, and came straight under Allied tutelage. Uh, and, and this is entirely to their advantage, as you, you'll probably get, the, uh, this is the drift of this talk if you see what I mean. Uh, by August 1918, the Americans had already suffered 60,000 casualties in battle and Pershing finally writes perhaps we are losing too many men and he wonders whether we might need more tanks and more artillery. This is in August, they been there, you know, since <laughs> for at least six months by then. But they they issue a com- a combat instructions for troops of the First Army issued on the 29th of August 1918, and this is still about um, breaking four, 45 positions in order to return to open warfare, with instructions uh, set for the infantry. Uh, to go along an axis of advance and then let them push on as rapidly as possible, um, always towards dramatically unrealistic and virtually unlimited objectives. And this was simply aping the sort of storm troop tactics of the Germans without any of the intervening experience uh, which had been acquired by Allied troops. So the reality of the American experience on the Western Front is the headquarters of the American Expeditionary Force trying to impose a pre-war dogma uh, and 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 I must say a sort of a national chauvinism uh, on the masses of new and hastily trained infantry, and of the American divisions learning a very very different message uh, from the uh, bottom up, based on the grim sort of reality of, of modern industrialised warfare. So we'll turn to the the, the First Division, the famous Big Red One, you know, named after their sleeve badge. Um, They're the first ones over, and they immediately come under French tutelage, as I said. Uh, Now... From the very first, they, they start to defy official American doctrine. <laughs> um, the, the, the elite French 47th Division uh, took them under their wing and worked them very, very hard for 10 months. Um, so the French assumed, being the 1st Division, they assumed they were all sort of long-service regulars. But in fact, the, the division had had to fill up its ranks with 50% of completely green draftees, you know, just to bring it back up to a, a, to a war-strength And the American headquarters in France openly disapproved of all this French training, but they didn't uh, interfere in any way. Uh, And in fact, the division became very, very good at um, trench warfare, at the routine of trench warfare. Its main problem was that... um the rest of the American army kept plundering it for good officers. You know, every time an officer got a bit of experience, he was whipped away to another formation that was coming into France or away to a training school. So, in fact, in the 1st Division, 75% of its battalion commanders was absent from the division at any one time on on other duties. It's a problem that America had in Vietnam as well. Now... In the 1st Division, one of the brigadiers, a chap called Buck, was very, very pro-Pershing and pro-open warfare. But uh, luckily, the divisional commander, a chap called Robert Bullard, was very much uh, up to speed with French war doctrine. And uh, who is his chief of artillery? Charles Summerall, the guy I just mentioned a little while ago. And who is his um, chief of staff? a chap called George Marshall, who of course is the chief of staff of the American Army in the Second World War, and a truly great soldier. So this division is, again, very lucky in its its high command. Out of a 140-hour training programme... but, uh, the Amer- this 1st Division got s- 66 hours of the very, very latest small uh, unit fire and movement drills, which they've learnt from the French Army. Um, besides a general favouring of firepower, uh, they do ensure that their infantry can use their Stokes mortars and, the- and these infantry guns that the French have provided with them. And he beefs up his infantry companies with extra rifle grenades and extra bombers. Again, these are all lessons he's learning from the French. Um, in fact, this this division does far more um, uh, proper sort of trench-to-trench training than than any other division in the American army. So it goes into the first ever attack uh, conducted by the American army at a place called Cantigny on the 28th of May 1918. It's part of the operation that's putting a stop to the last phase of those German spring offensives of 1918. And again, a perfectly planned, limited objective uh, affair. The attacking regiment is very well stocked and carefully rehearsed. It has lots of auxiliary weapons. Uh, it has French flamethrowers and tanks to assist it. It, it organises lots of counter-battery fire against the German artillery. And there's an excellent combination of um, preparatory bombardment, uh, a very violent a one-hour bombardment just before the main attack, uh, and then a steady rolling barrage, which the infantry is able to follow uh, onto, onto the enemy objective. And it, they take their objectives in 35 minutes. Two, American, two enemy battalions are annihilated. Uh, they ca- lots of prisoners and their own losses really very, very small. Um, I mean, 45 officers and 822 men altogether. A total of 22% of the attacking force uh, and only 3% of the actual division strength. So you know, for a first um, effort, this is an extraordinary success. And uh, six enemy counterattacks are beaten off in, in very, very rapid succession. And uh, just what a pity that that lesson wasn't absorbed quickly enough by the rest of the American army. The next famous fight, of course, is the 2nd Division at Bellow Wood. Um, again, something that the Americans are very, very proud of. This, um, this division, again turns out to be one of the best in the army. It'll take, uh, it'll take nearly 20% of all the German prisoners captured by the American army in the entire war. Uh, it captures 25% of all the German guns ever captured by the American army in the war uh, and, and it will suffer 10% of the entire American army's battle casualties. Um, But it's, again, started life uh, with its difficulties. 90% of its men had served for less than one year in the armed forces. Uh, You might remember that it was formed of an infantry brigade that came over from uh, the USA and a Marine Corps brigade uh, which was released to, to military service in France. And again its first officer commanding was a chap called James Harbord who uh, was from the very very start a pershing man a real believer in this open warfare doctrine that pershing uh, uh, established and and this is uh, this is what um James Harbord said as he prepared his division for its first battle. The war would never be won by troops of both sides remaining in parallel trenches, separated by a few hundred yards. Some day, someone somewhere would come out of his trenches and start forward, and thus a stalemate would be broken and the war would eventually be won. When even one soldier climbed out and moved to the front... The adventure, for him, the adventure for him became open warfare and the essentials of minor tactics were in play. Okay? So the <laughs> I wonder what our boys on the 1st of July 1916 thought about that sort of advice. You know, Get up out of your trenches, move forward, you've recreated open warfare. And, and, and on that basis, this man launched his division at the Germans at Bellowood. Now fortunately all the early training of the division had been with very good French divisions uh, and the open warfare component organ- ordered by the he- American headquarters was interrupted by these German offensives and so they were rushed off to fight at Chateau Thierry before they got uh, infected almost by this open warfare doctrine. This is, uh, this is what they're... Uh, Chief of Staff said, a chap called Hugh Drum on the 18th of May. In some cases, the enemy deployment may be so dense that the old-time shoulder-to-shoulder function will be required. So he's actually saying if the enemy puts up a fight when you're attacking him, you are going to have to be ready to throw massed infantry at him, shoulder-to-shoulder infantry at him to break him down and break through. And i say again, this this is May 1918 when we've had those years of experience that the Americans are supposed to have observed and learnt from. And it's really quite frightening. The division comes into the line on the 2nd of June. Um... Of course, it's met by some terribly despondent French who tell them they should retreat at once. And this is where famously the American says, retreat? Hell, we just got here. Uh, Now, possibly the greatest contribution of the arrival of the Americans is the enormous boost they give to morale of some very, very um, shaken, war-weary allies. And Pétain said as much. He said, uh, you got here just in time. I don't know who could have held out much longer. And, uh, uh, again, it, it, they are a tremendous sort of moral boost to the Allies, and the Germans were, um, although they held the American army in contempt, they knew there would be an awful lot of them, and so they were very, very anxious that the, uh, that the Americans should suffer an early defeat, and uh, Ludendorff told his front commander to hit the Americans particularly hard. Uh, America is on trial. So the first attack made by the 2nd Division is uh, to take ground in front of Bellow Wood, um, it's, it's open terrain here, it's, there's very little in the way of formal trenches, in any way it's ideal country for open warfare. Um, so Harbord's plan uh, p- plays scant attention to artillery. He argues that the preparatory fire will merely attract attention. Uh, and so there will be no rolling barrows, you will just make do with a, a quick five minute hurricane bombardment and then he'll send his troops in. So the first attack goes in very early in the morning, about a quarter to four in the morning on the 6th of June, with the Marine Infantry Brigade going forward in beautifully dressed straight lines, wave after wave of them. Now, because they've attacked so early in the morning, I think, and without any, to his point, without any artillery preparation, it came as a surprise to the Germans, uh, they do take their first objective by 7 um, o'clock. They do suffer uh, a lot of casualties, but they're happy that they've taken their objectives uh, and... uh, Everything seemed to be very tidy. Now, at two o'clock in the afternoon, Harbord, who thinks he's just vindicated the whole open warfare doctrine, orders another attack to go in at five o'clock in the afternoon with even less artillery support than they'd been in the morning. Uh, And again, he thinks that uh, a surprise attack will pull it off. Well, of course, the Germans are completely alert and aware of what's going on now. And this is the famous occasion where the Marine infantry walk forward through a Wheat field, and they are literally scythed down by the German machine guns. They t- take a thousand casualties in two minutes. It was a, a, a complete catastrophe for them. And this sort of attack went on for two more days before the regimental officers um, started demanding more fire support from the division. And in particular, the Marine Corps uh, brigade commander, a chap called John Lejeune, becomes very firepower conscious. uh, And mercifully, he gets command of the division in July of 1918. And he becomes, again, one of the great American generals of the First World War. Now, he noted that the reckless courage of the foot soldier with his rifle and bayonet could not overcome machine guns, uh, which which, which are well protected in their rocky nests. Uh, The French were simply aghast at the American tactics, couldn't believe their eyes, and they reported that attacks must be conducted methodically by means of successive minor operations, making the utmost use of artillery and reducing the employment of infantry to the minimum. Uh, Pershing, of course, was congratulating Harvard on his splendid work, you know, splendid work losing all these thousands of men completely unnecessarily really Uh, again to be fair to Harbard, and I always try and be fair to these people he very quickly saw that his support of official doctrine was horrendously expensive and he even allowed units to abandon captured ground to give the artillery a free hand to soften up the next uh, target to be attacked so on the 10th of June, it uses 160 guns firing 28,000 rounds of 75mm ammunition, 12,000 rounds of heavy 155mm shell in support of a single battalion attack on Bellow Wood. Um, there's a one hour preparatory fire at very great depth and then a very brisk rolling barrage, actually it takes off m- almost twice as fast as any British creeping barrage would, um, but in this crescendo of fire, the infantry go in uh, and completely suppress the, American, the, the enemy defences. And they capture this uh, wood, uh, losing precisely eight men killed and 24 wounded. I mean, a staggering difference from the disaster at Wood earlier on. And here a fire-heavy attack uh, takes it with, with absolutely minimal casualties. Uh, as often happens in First World Battles, the, the, the attacks go on, they're kept up, there's increasingly stiff resistance. And um, I'm sorry to say that Harbard reverts to his belief in the great power of the rifle and openly belittles reliance on artillery support. Um, he called on the infantry to advance by the judicious use of sharpshooting snipers. <laughs> I have no idea what he means by that, no idea. After one terrible failure on the 23rd of June, one of his battalion commanders simply refused an order to attack. <coughs> and Harbour finally got the message and concurred. And so two days later, an attack with a 13-hour preparatory bombardment and a steady rolling barrage, again, clears the wood that they're tra- attacking, takes 300 prisoners and 19 machine guns and suffer only 123 casualties. So again, the lesson is being rammed home all the time uh, that uh, it's fire support that infantry needs to, to take these objectives. Now, happily, their next fight, taking the village of Vaux, on the 1st of July 1918 was a textbook success with a complex artillery plan perfectly attuned to getting quite now well-rehearsed battalions onto their objectives Uh, a long preparatory bombardment um, a a very intense final three hours of bombardment uh, which included 6,000 mustard gas shells I'm afraid once the Germans had started using this stuff we gave it back to them in spades I'm sure you're aware Um, and and then um, (coughs) excuse me In the last three minutes, a really intense hurricane bombardment and a box barrage which seals off the enemy defences. And then the Americans go in with French air support, machine gun barrages and a creeping barrage. The whole panoply of modern warfare on the Western Front. And again, the the objective's taken, large numbers of enemy casualties inflicted, uh, an absolute minimal loss to the Americans. The next big fight of the American army is... um, where they're very much under the command of a, a very fiery gen- French general called Mongan. Um, very much, I mean, the, the Persian loved Mongan. He was one of these real open warfare types, you know, wanted uh, massive infantry attacks to, to overwhelm the enemy defences. Um, it's part of the great uh, French counter offensive of 18th of July, which finally wrests the initiative away from the German army for the rest of this war. And again, the attack goes in, there's very little artillery preparation, (coughs) Uh, but also a large number of tanks used, again, to achieve tactical surprise. In it, the 1st American Division would display a reckless courage uh, and welcome the chance to push on beyond the creeping barrage and return to open warfare conditions. Um... At this stage, the American staff uh, work is very, very bad indeed. They've got a lot to learn yet. In fact, the the traffic jams behind American divisions were legendary. They were sort of mother and father of all traffic jams. And again, while the infantry were were, were got forward in good time, all the auxiliary weapons and even the artillery were very late getting into position. Um, One American said, we were short of everything except rifle ammunition. Again, entirely within Pershing's uh, doctrine. The French demanded a very high tempo of operations over the next few days, setting very ambitious objectives, so you can't really blame the Americans for the soaring casualty lists that follow. Um, but we do see a tendency to let the rolling barrages start quite a long way forward. The Americans call it a safe distance. If they're not entirely sure of the start line <coughs> for the attack, they'll set the creeping barrages to start a long way forward uh, from the actual attacking infantry. Um, this gives the Germans lots of opportunity to get machine guns in, you know, let the barracks pass over and then machine guns can come out and, and face the infantry uh, behind. Again, the. It's a very costly battle. They, they do make a, a considerable advance, 11 kilometres, take 3,500 prisoners, 96 guns. They lose 7,000 men doing it. But here you see they're losing 60% of all the officers engaged in the attack and 75% of all the field officers, that's majors and colonels. These are very brave American officers leading from the front but uh, you know, taking terrible casualties and, and, of course, fatally compromising the ability of, of the division to function after that. The final attack on the 21st of July, uh, again, sees a much more heavy um, fire support, um, including uh, an opening barrage that starts very close to the American front line. In fact, the Americans ev- evacuated their front line trench so that the barrage could start very close to them. And then it really searched no man's land properly. Uh, and um, I should uh, explain that my hero, the gunner, Charles Summerall, is now the commander of the division. And he is uh, he is doing it properly, he's he's, he's fighting these battles the way they should be fought. At a conference afterwards he critically noted that the men were not allowed to advance by rushes and take advantage of the shell holes made by our barrage but were required to follow the barrage walking slowly at the rate of 100 yards every three minutes. The losses were very heavy. The men tended to bunch up using old conventional attack formations with no apparent attempt to utilise cover. When the barrage slowed, the attack became reckless. There was far too much frontal assault of machine gun nests and little attempt to outflank them. And even the keen open warfare brigadier Buck that I told you about earlier noted that his leading waves were not thin enough. And and then he he finally worked out for himself and he finally worked out for himself that it is better still that there should be an irregular line of small columns at wide intervals each small column being an independent unit whose mission is to gain the flank or the rear of a machine gun nest with the permission to advance rapidly or slowly according to conditions of the resistance met always picking up its way picking its way through barrages and areas swept by machine gun fire and these small columns of 4 6 or 8 men should have Uh, automatic rifles, rifle grenades, hand grenades, but the absence of any of all of these should not alter the action or purpose of the group. Finally, at last, the Americans are starting to write uh, proper analytical reports of their attacks, and they're beginning to learn uh, these lessons from a very excellent Moroccan division they were fighting beside. Uh, But the the tragedy is that they, they could have read any of this doctrine if they'd read the the manuals that the British Army published in February of 1917. Uh, these famous documents, SS-143, the training of the platoon in the attack, and SS-144. We'd worked out all this modern style of fighting on a, on a modern battlefield. They, we learnt it on the Somme, we published it in February 1917, and here we are in July of 1918, and the Americans are just relearning all those lessons in, in, the, in the most costly way you can, you, you can imagine. So Summerall, as I say, is now the commander of the division. He, he orders that all future attacks will have trench mortars, machine guns, artillery forward observation officers, uh, and the proper use of cover integrated into the plan. And he, de- he actually declares the rifle inferior to the light machine gun, which is, was his heresy in Pershing's eyes, and insists that every infantryman is trained to use the light machine gun and and the rifle grenade. And again, he he could have read that a year earlier in the British manuals of um, of, of 1917. But at least in this division, in the first division, that the mental revolution required by this war is complete. And the second division has similar experiences. Originally thrown into attacks uh, with impossible objectives, um, taking heavy, heavy casualties in its initial uh, fighting, uh, and then learning on the job that this is not the way to do it another salutary lesson in the wrong way to do things uh, and the timely promotion of um, John Lejeune I talked about earlier to divisional command again means that this division will fight its battles in a very different way from here on in so we've just talked about American regular divisions so far We're, we're bring in another kind of division now. The 26th Division is called the Yankee Division. It's uh, New England National Guard. That's like our Territorial Army. Would have been called the Territorial Force then, of course. They came over in November of 1917 with uh, much less open warfare training than any other of the early starter divisions. And again, their commander, a chap called Clarence Edwards, um, a a politician, I mean, a a New England politician who got into the National Guard as a way of uh, making himself famous at home, Uh, he, he he graduated from West Point in 1883. He came out of a class of 52. He came um, 52nd. <laughs> okay. uh, so, um, yeah, n- not, not the brightest uh, soldier in the American army, but, uh, and again, his, his division does acquire a reputation for being sort of slightly underachieving complainers. But the truth is that Pershing and most of the regular officers hate the National Guard. They despise them. They call them Boy Scouts. Uh, And all their faults are exaggerated and all their achievements are denigrated, really. Um, Clarence Edward came out early. He came out in September 1917 and he spent time with the 16th, the Irish Division, of course, and the 51st Highland Division. Uh, And he he completely accepted the British um, style of fighting on the Western Front and especially our use of machine guns. He was a big, big fan of of British doctrine. And the division, again, passes immediately under French tutelage, uh, and the the French are very impressed with how quickly these Americans learn the the new modern tactics. Edwards um, studiously avoided any advice from American headquarters, uh, their obsession with the rifle and bayonet drill, and he openly ridicules American training guides, which is not a good career move for him, of course, but um, to his credit. In April of 1918, the division goes into the front line, uh, defeats some uh, German trench raids. The French are very, very complimentary. In fact, the very first medals given to American soldiers, including a Croix de Guerre, goes to this 26th American division. But Pershing uh, <clears throat> comes down just after they'd suffered a very, very bad um, trench raid by the Germans. 2,800 Germans had suddenly raided uh, this division. Um, they were led by these new Stoss troopers, you know, the storm troopers, and they'd given them a really severe beating and they captured 180 American soldiers out of the front line. So, of course, Pershing comes down and he he dumps on this division. He, he really, really critical. Um, he will always starve them of replacements, um, and, he, and he will plunder the division for all its best officers and NCOs for the ins- instructors at army schools and that sort of thing. So, 26 Division goes into Hunter Liggett's 1st Corps for the Battle of Soissons. Now, Hunter Liggett, regular, hates the National Guard as well, um, and there is some some very sloppy organisation within this division. I mean, large numbers of the men went into battle with empty water canteens the most basic thing that a regimental officer would check before his blokes go over the top is that their canteens are filled this, this didn't happen in the 26th division and despite being in the line for several days before the attack only one battalion actually managed to jump off at the correct time when the battle started um, and then when they do go in they're rather overzealous and they greatly exceed their objective lines and they stray into French divisional areas and just generally muck up <laughs> the attack uh, so Liggett forces them to renew the attack at fairly short notice. And the core orders come down. They, the core orders make no mention of the use of machine guns in the attack whatsoever. Not one single word about them. This, in the summer of 1918, is just unbelievable you know now of course luckily 26th division as I said uh, Clarence Edwards is a big fan of the the way the British use their machine guns he writes the machine gun into the attack plan Um, he is obliged to use linear wave formations at first but it's not long before his junior leaders are reporting that they're switching to short rushes of a few yards at a time proper fire and movement tactics that you would expect to see used Uh, they talk about a ragged filtering echelon after which my loss is depreciated more than expected so again, the harsh experience is teaching these chaps to, to do it properly. Core orders call for the pushing forward at all costs and for a more uh, pursuit. <coughs> and um, I mean, mercifully for them, the Germans actually do begin a full-scale retreat. Uh, but both D- uh, Degout, the French commander, and Hunter Ligert uh, order an all-out pursuit and uh, the commander of one of the infantry regiments of the American uh, 26th Division personally leads a reconnaissance that identifies some very, very strong American uh, enemy defences ahead, and he warns Edward at divisional headquarters. Um, Edward's reports this back to corps and army, but he's, he's, he's just, the order's just sent down again. you you got your orders, we are pursuing a defeated enemy, you will uh, attack as ordered, and of course they, they go into the most predictable and bloody defeat uh, that, that very evening. So 26th Division uh, does come, start to come apart at the seams. Out of its 6,000 casualties, uh, o- over a quarter of them are men um, sort of going sick, you know, the, uh, swinging the lead, basically. Uh, Edwards is a real political general. He's got one eye on the voters back home. And he did run a very loose ship, but he did understand what modern war was about, um, came up with his own sort of idea of uh, an expanding torrent where he would concentrate all the divisional assets into attacking with one infantry regiment, throw everything behind that regiment and then break into the enemy position and then expand outwards. So again, he's thinking through the requirements of modern battle and coming up with some uh, useful ideas. We'll talk about one other kind of American division now. We've had the regular divisions and the National Guard divisions. They had their equivalent of the new army. They called it the National Army. So here we have the 77th division, uh, the Liberty Division. Uh, it completes its training in the USA, okay, so it's, it's completely indoctrinated with open warfare techniques and knows almost nothing about trench, trench fighting. Um, it was terribly short of experienced officers and NCOs. You were back to the worst days of the American Civil War where an officer would learn in the evening, he'd read a drill book in the evening and then teach his men <laughs> the next day, you know, how to do it. Uh, and, and that's what this division was organised like, I'm afraid. The, uh, the general officer commanding is a, a chap called Robert Alexander, A true believer in Persians official doctrine. His um, this division is entirely recruited from draftees, from conscripts in New York City, so they're very green. They're very, very new to the army. Uh, This one division they spoke a a total of forty-three different languages. You know, from a cosmopolitan city like New York, forty-three different languages spoke in this one division. And in an an attempt to familiarise themselves with army life. this chap calls his rifle squads gangs. He, he says he gets his men to form in little gangs. You know. So you really do have the gangs of New York <laughs> appearing on the, on the Western Front uh, in this new division. They come over in May of 1918, get some training from a British division, uh, and, and then their, uh, their misfortune is to go into the line in August of 1918 along a, the River Vale, where they, they have a very, very difficult task. They've got to... Um, They've got to defend a toehold of ground on the German side of this river. Um, Almost as soon as they go into the line, they lose 1,400 men uh, due to very, very poor gas discipline. Uh, They're they're very badly trained in putting on their gas masks, and they lose, on their first night in the trenches, they lose 1,400 men because they they, they fumble getting on their gas masks. The corps commander is... um, uh, uh, Robert Bullard, the, the old commander of the first division, who um, spends most of his time having the most awful rows with that old uh, French warhorse Degout. Uh, Degout is one of these uh, offensive Alutrans guys, you know, who wants everything to be done at uh, 100 miles an hour. Uh, Bullard has learnt that you've got to go much more slowly and more carefully in this in this fighting. One of the brigade commanders in the 77th Division, uh, a chap called Wittenmeyer, has a very good understanding of modern warfare, um, a much better understanding than his divisional commander. So he plans a very neat little operation, eliminating a German strongpoint by massive use of artillery. Uh, he's very lucky in that Alexander is temporarily absent from command of the division. So uh, this chap, Wittenmeyer, is able to fight this battle in his own way and uh, supports an attack on, on, on a, a, a German-held town, uh, Again, with massive fire support and uh, and uh, really does a very good little job uh, capturing capturing this place they they do a very bad job mopping it up i'm afraid they, the American infantry are very keen. they go through the town quite quickly and fail to check all the cellars and everything behind them so of course German infantry emerge up from behind and and create absolute chaos uh, in the american rear but again uh, that's uh in a, in a way a, a, a complete again if they if they listen to their British and French instructors. They, they never would have made that mistake in, in the first place. Alexander returns to the division, an ardent admirer of, of Pershing and of Degout, um the, the, Alexander had been away and done some uh, service with the British Expeditionary Force but he said he went there not as a student but as a critic uh, so that, again you've got one of these American officers who, who really does think he knows much much better than the British uh, generals how to conduct uh, fighting on the Western Front he openly derides heavy att- attacks that are heavily dependent on artillery fire and auxiliary weapons uh, the, the, say so the saving grace of Alexander is that he does um, he does decentralise executive command he, he doesn't he, once, once he's given a, a job to a brigade commander Wanted to do, he lets him get on and do it, um, and, and these are the guys who who understood the realities of modern warfare and are much more fire heavy in their in their planning. So again. <laughs> This chap, Alexander, he he refers back to Harvard's uh, famous attacks at Wood, and writes that the infantry soldier, using intelligently the firepower of his rifle, is still, as always since the introduction of firearms, the dominant factor of victory. In war, the machine, while it may be a sister man, can never replace him. And he said that at Wood, the American Marines had had shown that the infantry rifle was again to demonstrate the fact that when properly employed, it is still as powerful a factor in battle as it has ever been. So I'm just putting that in to show you that some of these American generals, despite all the experience that their own troops are going through, uh, are still obsessed with the idea that the the rifle-carrying infantryman uh, is the most decisive uh, instrument of, of fighting on the Western Front. so now the the american army are absorbing very very large numbers of fairly green replacements uh, ready for their next big fight which is at a place called sammy hill in september of 1918 now the the, be- the luckiest ones are absorbed into these divisions that have got a lot of experience of fighting on the western front now and they're they're instructed by these veterans in the new style of warfare they, they've arrived with the old sort of notion of open warfare and they're very quickly disabused of that by the veterans who've been through the mill uh, and are now being taught the the, the proper way to fight on the western front so uh, basically uh, the directives coming from down from american army's headquarters are um are quite literally ignored by the by the by the divisions actually doing the fighting on the on the front line Uh, they were particularly annoyed by one instruction that came down reminding them that mounted men would be most useful as battlefield runners. Again, this is somebody in American headquarters who thinks that's a good idea in September of 1918. So Pershing was delighted to be given such a major task. He's going to eliminate this large uh, German salient at Sambihiel, which is just next to Verdun on the Western Front. Um, He uh, is openly disappointed when uh, Marshal Foch tells him that all I want you to do is just eliminate flatten out the salient uh, of course wants to break the German front here and head all the way to Metz and on into Germany but uh, Foch he would be much more happy for him just to eliminate this salient um, the orders coming down from army and corps level were to put it politely a a little uh, confusing. Uh, They they spoke of penetrating along lines of least resistance and vigorously exploiting any success, Um, so obviously expecting a return to open warfare very, very quickly. Um, Some core orders spoke of relying on the well-known natural characteristics of individual initiative, repetitive decision, resolute daring, and the driving power of the U.S. infantry. But, of course, then it comes down from army, it comes down to the actual chiefs of staff who are organising these attacks. And, again, our, our, the great George Marshall is there, and he plans a very, very thorough battle at San Miguel. Um, he, uh, he gives the divisions uh, 10 days to train for the battle. He calls for 22 hours of artillery preparation. Um, Pershing said that's far too long. Uh, Marshall says at least give me 18 hours Pershing argues them down to four hours in the end. I mean, in this particular battle, of course, we are looking at um, over half a million American troops, 100,000 French troops, 3,000 guns, 400 tanks, attacking just 50,000 Germans. So the attack odds are 12 to 1 in favour of the attackers, uh, which is pretty good as far as I'm concerned. Um, The... The further down you go, down to to division, down to brigade, down to regiment, you're getting a much more realistic approach to the attack. Um, Second Division, for instance, issues its attack orders 33 pages long, uh, and they flatly contradict American doctrine on every single page. Uh, There's a massive artillery plan uh, through every stage of the attack, with rolling barrages, with tanks, with air support, use of smoke, all this sort of thing. A really, really good, complex attack plan. Um... The division does very well on the first day. It loses only 500 men and achieves all its objectives. Uh, in fact, of all the American divisions involved, it, it, hasn't, it doesn't need to be relieved for um, several days. It's doing so well on the, west, on the, on the front line. Uh, other after-action re- after reports speak of how well the waves of, Amer- of skirmishers went forward, leading small columns of troops, uh, the excellent work of the light machine guns, um, it actually says there was very, very use of the rifle in the attack. It was almost unnecessary because everything else was going so well. Again, heresy as far as Pershing's concerned, of course. Uh, and then suggestions are being made for improving liaison techniques, especially between in the infantry and the artillery. And, and so after all the great success at saint Mihiel, uh, what happens? Down comes a, an, an Inspector General's report from headquarters um, complaining that the American divisions had failed to properly follow American doctrine in the in the recent attack. I mean, the attack had been a huge success, an, un, an unqualified success, but the, the American headquarters complained that it wasn't done uh, according to American doctrine. <laughs> um, in, the, in the same way, the First Division uh, planned its... Part, a a series of set piece attacks, all with easily achievable, very, very limited objectives, with the infantry always being covered by... Uh, Artillery by rolling barrages and set piece barrages. Uh, They deliver a model all arms coordinated attack which achieves all its objectives well within time. Uh, The corps commander, um, I'm afraid a chap called Dickman, was the worst kind of open warfare fanatic. Um, He'd been a a commander of the 3rd Division which had really, really suffered under his divisional command. Um, And he now orders Charles Summerall uh, to renew the attack at once to achieve the second day's objectives on the first day. And Summerall uh, just says no. You know, forget it. Um, Not until the artillery has been redeployed according to the plan. Uh, Dickman uh, again orders up United States cavalry and tries to get them into action. Uh, They they pay a very heavy price for that. And um, Summerall is finally lent on by Army Command and is strictly ordered to renew the attack. On that day, that same day, but what he does do is he just delays everything so long that it's it's dark by the time he, he actually renews the attack on the first day, and he sends an entire division forward very very slowly, very deliberately, acting like a steamroller. You know, so he he, he obeys orders from above, but does it in 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 his own way and, and sort of makes sure that uh, things don't get out of hand. Our old friend Clarence Edwards of the 26th Division was a keen supporter of the longer bombardment. He argued for the need to upset the equilibrium of the Bosch in every way before we attack him. Uh, He he gives plenty of work to his machine guns, his trench mortars, to his his artillery. Uh, His division goes in behind a very good rolling barrage. Again, they've had to learn a lot of new tactics very quickly, so they haven't quite got the the idea of these little columns going forward yet. Um, As the lead regiment gets more and more disorganised, the next one leapfrogs over it and takes all its objectives well within time and actually outpaces veteran French troops on either side of them. So, again, with good leadership, these divisions can achieve extraordinary things. Now, Pershing seizes on their success and rewards them by ordering them to keep attacking all through the night to seal off the German line of retreat. And again, this uh, National Guard division uh, responds magnificently. It, it sees a great chance to outshine uh, the, the first division they call Pershing's Pets. Uh, they push on another nine kilometers, take two and a half thousand prisoners, suffering less than 500 casualties. Um, and of course, to, to Pershing, that, that just vindicates his open warfare doctrine. You know, the fact that these boys have done so well pushing on uh, after an initial success, um, this becomes uh, 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 proof to Pershing that he was right all along. And uh, that Edwards, when Edwards, Edwards reports, um, denies that it was a rifleman's victory, and he praises the work of the machine guns, the artillery, and the trench mortars. Pershing resp- re- responds: Too much training cannot be given uh, to. Pl-. Sorry, this is Clarence Edwards. Too much training cannot be given to platoons in manoeuvring while attempting to reduce machine gun nests. And all his units are reporting the, s- the success of their small combat groups in small columns. And what do they get from Pershing? Uh, complaints about their disorganisation, faint praise from their corps commander. Uh, Saying that they relied too much on artillery uh, and and didn't do enough uh, with the, with their rifles, uh, and, and it's almost as if uh, you know the day to day experience of the um, American soldiers are just being comprehensively ignored by their army and, and corps command. We, we move on now to the famous Meuse Argonne offensive. This is this is the, probably the biggest single uh, uh, effort that the American army made in the First World War. A, a long planned operation uh, followed very soon after the Saint-Michiel fighting, so that in fact many of the veteran divisions that have been used at Saint-Michiel were not available for the Meuse argonne so the, the people who are attacking here, nine divisions, nine big divisions remember, attacking five um, very badly weakened uh, German divisions, but these are, these are divisions that are new to fighting on the Western Front, so they're, they're gonna have uh, a lot to learn very, very quickly. Pershing sets the most extraordinary uh, objectives. Um, <clears throat> he wants these people to surge forward over 16 kilometres of the worst terrain in France. Remember, this, this is mountain forest, forested mountains. In just two days, they had to break three defence lines, including an extension of the famous Hindenburg Line. Um... It's it's quite obvious that the attackers would outrun their artillery support quite quickly, but Persian counts on, this is again Persian, it counts on the infantrymen to use their own skills and weaponry to fight through the enemy main line of resistance without much, if any, artillery fire. Without much, if any, artillery fire in support. In September 1918, to hear a general say that is just... Extraordinary, yeah. One observer said it, it was as though reasonable. It was thought reasonable to count on the vigor and aggressive spirit of our troops to make up in a measure for their inexperience. Okay, um, this this is unbelievable in September October 1918 to hear generals talking like this and in fact in his diary at the end of September Pershing wrote for the next advance I will assign successive objectives in order to allow green troops to reform now and then before continuing the advance very good of him once again and fatally uh, the sheer scale and violence of the opening attack uh, sees the Americans make some good advances remember for the first two kilometers of advance or so they're just going through lightly held german outposts Uh, and in particular the holy green 35th division just suddenly found a gap in the german line and surged forward 10 kilometers uh, and then quite reasonably asked for permission to dig in and defend what it had gained oh no says pershing you've you've got the germans on the run you know you and then he orders the entire american army to keep up the pursuit And even Liggett, who's commanding the 1st Army, uh, realises this is really quite a bad idea, uh, you know, to to, to blunder forward uh, without any further preparation. But he's overruled by Pershing. And on the second day, the Americans make no advance at all and are massively defeated by German counterattacks. Three veteran divisions have to be rushed up uh, to support these really green divisions in the Meuse-Argonne. And things turn very nasty very quickly the battle degenerates into a series of uncoordinated uh, divisional level struggles uh And now the attacks were ordered just to keep up pressure on the enemy, regardless of what artillery was available. Summerall is now a corps commander with his old 1st Division under him uh, and sees his divisions grinding their way forward using maximum firepower, artillery and all the support weapons they can possibly organise. And he organises attacks using like utilising infantry in individual groups going in behind massive bombardments. It's, um, it's ironic that it's this first division, Pershing's pets as they're known, uh, flatly contradicts the, the doctrine that Pershing um, imposes on them all the time. The, the 77th Division found itself on the extreme left of the American line uh, and it's fighting wholly within the dark recesses of the Argonne Forest with relatively small, though still very demanding, objective lines. It's, it's had to absorb 4,000 of the greenest uh, replacements you can possibly imagine. Um, and, uh, I mean, some of the men, they say, could barely load and shoot their rifles. Um, and, again, their divisional commander, Alexander Alexander, uh, uh, just orders a straightforward push by the whole line. He makes so little reference to artillery and support weapons in his operational orders that you actually wonder if he knows he's got any under his command. he, so the saving grace of this man is he decentralises down to his brigade and regiment level, and it's thankfully those men and their personal experience that lead them to plan the local attacks with the highest possible level of fire support, uh, with short bursts of intense fire, uh, lots of use of, um, uh, of the, the rolling barrage the local commanders uh, nudge forward steadily uh, 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 under as much fire support as they can possibly imagine. uh, And and they, they in a quiet and unassuming way, achieve their objectives, but as I say, in complete opposition to American doctrine. In the very last phase of the the attack, uh, Alexander orders back to an open warfare uh, style of attack. And his troops do the complete opposite, I mean, literally the complete opposite to his orders. Uh, and, in, and in fact, with good artillery support before, during, and after the attack, they take 700 prisoners and suffer only 78 casualties in, in taking their objective. I'm passing over some of this now. So, yeah. Excuse me, I'm yeah. I have to train. Together. That's okay, this is, I realise this salt. is a problem, yeah, okay. If, yeah, that's okay now, yep. So at uh, the last stage of the meuse argonne Offensive, um, which is now November of 1918, in fact, leading up to the 11th of November, the end of the war, uh, again, there's still some terrible fighting to be done in a very, very difficult country against an enemy who's now literally got his back to the wall. Um, Uh, But as they get nearer to the the river Meuse, there really is a sort of a pursuit phase of a defeated enemy, Uh, and once over the Meuse, they've broken out into open country all all the way to Germany, of course. At this stage, Robert Alexander lurches into his most extreme open warfare rhetoric, and in some respects he's he's worse than Pershing. He actually calls all all auxiliary weapons are mere adjuncts to the riflemen who are called upon to use their aggression to build a firing line to achieve... uh, fire superiority that that is straight out of the pre-1914 drill books and no other army in the world is is talking like this in 1918. Um, In fact his division is only saved from annihilation by his propensity to delegate that I've talked about before and his his critics call it an abdication of responsibility but you know thank God that's what he did. Even his own staff pass on a different uh, ethos down to the brigade and the regiment. So remember, the men cannot do anything against material, against wire entanglements. Artillery preparation is necessary to open the road to the infantry. Otherwise, the infantry will be needlessly sacrificed. Uh, and I say, mercifully, the American army, the actual army doing the fighting on the ground, has now learnt all these really, really important lessons, uh, and uh, they comprehensively ignore instructions coming down from Pershing and, fr- and from army command. The, the the great soldiers I've talked about, Lejeune, Summerall, uh, the, the, these have now come up into division and even corps command and they're fighting the war in exactly the, the right way. Um, the last great attack uh, done by Summerall, uh, uh, now commanding 5th Corps but with his old 2nd Division under command and, and 1st Division as well. Uh, in his orders fire superiority rather than sheer manpower would be the driving force of the attack. Uh, And this, this, his last attack, delivered in November, is the single most powerful and comprehensive American Corps attack of the entire war. He incorporates bomber aircraft, mass machine guns, 255 of them firing in battery, uh, a fabulous counter-battery plan, a very British-style hurricane bombardment just before the attack, a multi-layered creeping barrage, uh, separate objective lines for the infantry, all achievable under artillery fire, uh, and... uh, and the infantry going forward behind really, really solid um, creeping barrages. All the objectives form exactly on on time, 1,300 prisoners taken, 75 guns captured, extremely low American infantry casualties. Now... Some might argue, and of course the American headquarters certainly would argue, that great opportunities were lost in November to restore open warfare and really put the Germans to flight. Um, the the, the fire-heavy divisions were now firmly wedded to their doctrine in opposition to the official line. Uh, what Summerall does now allow is for his troops to halt in front of any opposition and then use powerful attacks in the late evening <laughs> um, with very, very bold use of outflanking manoeuvre and night marches to dislodge the enemy. Um, and, of course, what, what is uh, Pershing's response to all this? Well, memos coming down saying, "Oh, you know, you didn't send forward individual field guns with your attacking infantry as ordered, uh, you know, as, as if the, the gunner Summerall would allow his batteries to be broken up so that individual guns could go forward with the infantry. Um, he had no intentions of doing that, of course. Um, the criticism of previous operations uh, that too little use was made of the rifle and of all other infantry weapons must be repeated. This is, this is Persian commenting on Summerall's victory. The infantryman does not use his rifle enough. He is too prone to leave the whole matter of fire superiority to the artillery. <laughs> yes. Uh, this is not in accordance with American tradition or doctrine and deprives the infantryman of the most efficient single aid to his advance, his rifle. So this is Pershing in November 1918, OK? <laughs> um, it is extraordinary and unbelievable. So there you have it. To the bitter end, Pershing uh, and, and his officers keep insisting on their pre-war obsession with an outmoded doctrine. And all the best American divisions went ahead fighting the war in completely the opposite way, um, I mean, 1st Division was very lucky in their early general officers commanding in Bullard and Summerall, uh, who began with set-piece attacks uh, and and then learnt how not to do it at Soissons and then were very good after that. Um, 2nd Division got off to a terrible start at Wood and then improved enormously and very quickly and went on to be the most successful American division uh, of the whole war. (coughs) So... The war comes to an end, very successfully, and you won't be surprised to know that after the war, Pershing fights a rearguard action against those officers whose understanding of doctrine was, he he described it as, overly influenced by their recent experience. (laughs) Okay, so you're criticising an officer for being overly influenced by his most recent experience. (laughs) That that is a negation of of everything that the military should stand for. Uh, And in the American Army, there there is a reaction. In the 1920s, a young infantry captain steps up and writes in the Infantry Journal that I quoted right at the start... The fame of the American rifleman is traditional and historic. The effectiveness of the rifle on the American frontier is well known and the story of the American rifle recalls such types as Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, Simon Kenton, don't know him, and Kit Carson. It is an American tradition that our rifleman does not shoot at random. He picks his man and the direct aim of his rifle speaks certain death. This is in 1922, okay, after all that experience, um, it, this, this article ends, all auxiliary weapons of the infantry are not mobile enough to keep pace with the riflemen. So, I'm almost sorry to end on that note because <laughs> the, 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 the the American soldier on the front line uh, under some extremely competent uh, generals uh, uh, fought very bravely and, and in the end very successfully, very skillfully. And his commanders rejected what he was doing while he was doing it and then rejected it after the war Um, these attempts to turn the clock back of course largely fail and the US Army in the Second World War and later of course has a very very um, healthy understanding of the power of modern weapons Um, as you know the American doctrine now is shock and awe uh, um, and it's just a a tragedy for the American Army that that wasn't Pershing's idea in 1917 thank you very much (laughs) It's a long, long way
0: to differentiate, my right there. You have been listening to Barrage, the podcast from the Antrim and Down branch of the Western Front Association. The theme tune was written by Jack Judge and performed by Albert Farrington on the 12th of October, 1915. It was downloaded from the Internet Archive at archive.org.